But anyway, we're thankful that you're here. Mark 6, if you've got your Bible, please turn with me there. And if you don't have one, we can put one in your hands. All right, so let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the day that you've given us. We recognize that our worthiness comes from being robed in your righteousness. And we thank you that as your kids that you have plucked us from the miry clay and you have set our feet upon a rock. And Lord, it is that rock that we wish to study today. We wish to see Jesus. Help us to learn from your scriptures. I just pray that you would illuminate them for us, that you would give us understanding, and that you would help us to walk out of here having heard from you, having drawn closer to you, and loving you even more. And so it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, Mark 6, and I am going to use some slides today. Garrett, if you'd please advance just one. All right, so why am I doing this? Why in the world am I putting geographic slides up here? One of the reasons is to make sure that Joe doesn't go to sleep, right? Joe went to sleep last time. He actually fell over. Uh, So I'm only kidding. The point, though, is my wife and I, we have have discussed this a lot recently, and I have to say my wife rather than Andy and I, lest you think I'm having a conversation with myself, is that when we talk about the things that we find in the Scripture, we talk about stories, right? We say the stories that are in the Bible, the stories that we've read, right? But we also use that word to describe the fairy tales that we share with kids, Right? We use the same word to describe fiction and nonfiction. And so when we're in Mark, as we are today, I just would like to try and take the opportunity to make it a narrative, right? It's a dialogue. It's a historical study that we're going to look at. And to try and anchor that, we'll use some maps, right? So if you'd go ahead and advance one more time, Garrett. So this is where we are, right? We're in Israel. Uh, One more time, please. Uno mas, por favor. Aha. And uh, one more time. And once more. And then I will let you alone for a little while. Thank you so much. All right. So we start in Israel, right? And then we zoom in a little more to an older map to try and give us an idea of where we are today. And our story is going to pick up in Nazareth, right? And so Nazareth is right in here. And the reason I have this star here is that's where Jesus had set up his headquarters, up on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, right? But our story today finds us in a dusty town called Nazareth. Now, a year ago, when Jesus was there, they had evicted him from the temple, right? And so he's back again. And so keep in mind, this is the town where he grew up, right? These are his peeps, right? They know him. He was the carpenter, right? And no doubt he had fixed things for people. And this is where he grew up. 
However, he's going to get a different reception than you might expect. So here we go. Verse 1. Read with me. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And that word offended means scandalized, right? And you can see it's like, oh, no, he didn't, right? You know, it's, it's, it's like, who is this guy? And wh- what does he think he's doing, right? They knew him, right? And if you'll read here at the end, it says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Right? In that day, people were identified with their fathers, the son of Joe, the son of whoever. But here... This is a jab at his illegitimacy, if you will, right? Because Joseph was not his father. And these are his half-brothers, right? So not only are they rejecting him, but they're also taking a jab at his illegitimacy, which is how he grew up, by the way, in that shadow, in that shame, if, if you will. Who does he think he is? And then in verse 4, it says, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And so my question to us is, have you been in this spot? Have you been in this spot where you've been rejected by family? Right? You've given your life to Christ. You've been saved. World has been changed. Old things have become new in your life. Right? And then you try and share this wonderful news with the people that know you the best, right? They knew you when you were this way. They knew you when you were not born again. Who has had issues with that? Sharing with family and friends that have sort of, who do you think you are? What we gave you isn't good enough? I mean, and I can remember, uh, I grew up in the church, but I didn't get saved until I was 26 or so. And I can remember that after I got saved and I had been baptized, that I wanted to be able to share that with my folks. But I was also baptized as an infant. And it's like, so what we did is not good enough? I mean, that's not the rejection that he has here, but it's, it's that... God has changed my life, and I want to share that with you. But yet, they know you, right? They know you leaving the bed unmade, you know, lying, stealing, cheating, right? They know that side of you as well. But in Luke 12, Jesus himself said, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
And so he does. He does bring division to homes, right, where there are competing worldviews because they're completely different. A biblical worldview and a secular worldview, they are completely different. And so if I can encourage you today that if you're in that spot where your family has rejected you because of your commitment to Christ, let me encourage you because they rejected the master as well. He's, he's, he has been there. Verse 5, here we go. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So this is going to be a recurring theme that we're going to see again in this book is about faith, right? And so... We're told in Colossians that Jesus is the creator, right? All things were made by him that were made. So this is the creator whose work and his power is hindered by unbelief, right? So the creator has determined to work through faith. But yet their unbelief, my unbelief, your unbelief, you can hinder what the creator of the universe would do. And that's a hard thing for me to wrap my mind around, but that's how he has chosen to work. It says in Psalm 78 that the Jews limited the Holy One of Israel by their unbelief. They limited what he was able to do in their lives by their unbelief. Well, and so as I read through this and I think about, all right, so he's in Nazareth. What would he have been able to do were it not for their unbelief? And I think we'll get a glimpse of this at the end of the chapter because the chapter is kind of bookended, if you will. He's in Nazareth at the beginning where, where they are clearly rejecting him. At the end, he is in a little village called Genesaret, and they are flooding him with all of their sick, lame, lazy, all of these people that need to come to they're coming out of the woodwork. And it's just a huge contrast. And so I just wonder here in Nazareth, what would he have done were it not for their unbelief? But let me get into your kitchen, right? Let me get into my life. What could he do in your life that he can't because of your unbelief? And I can't answer that. You have to answer that. Where are you? What are the decisions that are going on in your lives right now collectively that he would like to do something amazing, but we just, I just can't do it, Lord. I just don't have the faith. I can't answer that, right? You have to answer that as you think through what we read here. But this life, right, keep in mind that this life is the opportunity that we have to walk by faith. Right? When we leave this earth as a believer in Christ, the Bible tells us that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. Right? That's sight. That's no longer walking by faith. We are with Him. So when we are walking the streets of Golden, it's an opportunity to walk by faith. Right? And so what is He doing in your lives collectively that you have the choice, right? You get to choose to walk by faith, right? And that's not easy, right? And I'll share some of the times that I've kicked it in the stands in a little while. That's not an easy thing. I'm not saying that it is. I'm just asking, what would he do? What would he do 
he could do no mighty work in my life because of my unbelief, right? Insert your name there, right? That's not what we want to hear. So it says in verse 6 that he marveled because of their unbelief. He was astonished at their unbelief. That same word marveled is used one other time by Jesus in describing faith. And so who knows where it is? Jesus marveled at their unbelief. Now he also marveled at someone's belief. And who remembers where that was? Yes, ma'am. The widow? Not quite. Just close though. Starts with a C, rhymes with Enturian. Yes, Russell, you were going there. Right, the centurion, right? So the centurion, the Roman centurion had a servant in his house that was sick and he was, had gone to ask Jesus to come and to heal. And so Jesus is on his way and he sends servants and says, look, no, no, you don't even have to come to my house. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And it says that Jesus marveled, marveled, and he said he had not seen such faith in all of Israel. This was a Roman centurion, right? And so my question to us before we move on from this, and you're saying, please, for the love of Pete, move on from this. How does he see your faith? How does he marvel? Is it in a good way, right? Does he marvel at your expectancy about what he's going to do? Or does he marvel at your unbelief? Well, I certainly can't do that. Who am I? Well, I can't do that. I can't do that. How does he marvel when he considers your faith, my faith? If you'll advance the slide, gentlemen. All right. So here we go. Verse 6. And he called the twelve to himself, and he began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. All right. So why two by two? Any ideas? Any suggestions? They don't have any two by four. Then I touch. <laughs> well, so the law required two witnesses, right? But let me also draw your attention to Ecclesiastes, where it says in chapter four, verse nine, that two are better than one, because they have good reward for their labor. For if they fall. One will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So two by two, right? They're able to mutually support one another, right? And from a military perspective, you don't send people out alone, right? They're at least in a pair, right? You've got your battle buddy, right? Or in the case of Logan, right? Within law enforcement, you have a partner, right? You don't do things by yourself. And it is, uh, so it's not surprising that he would send them out two by two because you can support one another. And I can remember last year, whenever uh, Jordan and I were handing out invitations over here in in Golden for the Christmas uh, service. 
And it's just easier when you're doing it with someone else. You're able to support one another. You're able to hold one another up. You're able to point and laugh at each other, right? You know, there's always jocularity, right? But there's a reason for that. And you're able to support one another. And he says in verse 8, He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bag. And this was a beggar's bag. So they were not to beg for money. They're not to beg for food. No bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And so let me ask you, why is he sending them out with like nothing but the bare bones essentials? What do you think? What do we think? Faith. Faith. Ding, ding, ding. That's fantastic, Joe. Faith, right? They couldn't depend on themselves for what he was going to do through them. They didn't have any extra stuff. They didn't have any food. They had no money, right? They've got to go into the town, into the villages, and they've got to depend on what he's going to do. It's fantastic. Joe hasn't gone to sleep yet. Sorry. All right. Verse 10. Also, he, he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, When you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. So when you share... To family or friends or whoever it is, somebody at work or school or whatever context your life puts you. When they reject that message, are you offended personally? Right? And it can be easy to be offended personally, right? Because it's like, this is my Lord and God, right? This is whom I serve. I've given my life to Him. He's radically transformed my life. And I'm sharing this with you, this good news and it, it's, it's either right over their head, it's in one ear out the other, or they're, you know, vehemently against what you're saying, but they reject it. And it is very easy to take that personally, right? Because it's like, I'm sharing from my heart. But the same thing happened to Samuel, right? In the Old Testament, the people came to Samuel, who was the prophet at that time, and said, we want a king. We don't want any more of this, right? We want a king. And so Samuel goes to the Lord and he says, look, they've rejected me. And the Lord said, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And so when we are rejected, when we do share and it's just thrown out, it's him they're rejecting, not us, right? But that's easier said than done because that always hurts whenever there are people that you're sharing with and they don't accept it. So what he says, though, is that if they don't receive your testimony, when you're leaving, shake the dust off your feet, right? And if you were a Jew and you were in a Gentile region, those that weren't Jews, and you would leave, that was customary to shake the dust off your feet, right? They would be used to that. But now he's saying, look, it doesn't matter the village, right? These were Jewish villages that they would go in and shake the dust off your feet. So that's new to them. But really, what is he saying? Who here seen Frozen? Who here seen Frozen? All right, so sing with me. 
right? So sing with me. Let it go, let it go, right? That's what he's saying to them, right? Let it go, right? Just shake the dust off your feet and keep going, right? But one thing I would like to challenge us with, and it's kind of obscure here, it says it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city, right? Referring to the city that they've been in that has rejected their message. Let me read you a verse from Luke 12. It says, For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. What does that have to do with Sodom and Gomorrah? So when I read this, what this says is that, look, this city that has rejected the people that I have sent there to share the gospel, to share about the miracles, to share about the healing, to share about all that Christ was actively doing right then and there, and they've ignored it. Versus the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that based on this example had been given less truth The judgment was going to be more severe on them because they had been given truth and they had still rejected it. And so my challenge to us today is, all right, you're saved. Great. What have you done with it? What have you done with it? Right? We've given our lives to Christ. What is He calling you to and what have we done with it? Because it says, to whom much is given, much will be required. Right? Are we lighting our lamp and putting it under a basket? Right, Because we weren't designed to be that way. I mean, this is challenging for me too. This is not me pointing at you. This is pointing at you and there are you know, there are three pointing back, right? So, All right, verse 14. So now we get into a lovely family affair. Verse 14, now King Herod heard of him. That's, that's Jesus for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. And therefore, these powers are at work in him. And others said, it's Elijah. Others said, it is the prophet, or one like the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, nope, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold on John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias' wife, his brother. I'm sorry, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, Dude, this is jacked up. You gotta knock this off. You gotta stop this garbage. Or it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Hold on, put on the brakes. Is that us? Is that us? Do we hear Jesus gladly and not do anything with it? Are we hearers and not doers, right? That's what he's being described as. He heard him gladly. He heard the teaching. He received it, but his life hadn't changed, right? He was still living in an adulterous relationship. 
And this lady that he married, not only was it his brother's wife, it was also his niece, right? So it's, it's a very sordid tale. But are we hearers and not doers, right? But, so let me encourage us, right? So it is, it is often easy to be a hearer and a doer when the command is, is action, Right? We pray and we get an answer, it's yes or no, and it involves, you know, either going and doing something or stopping this. But what is it when it's wait? Oh, Lord, seriously, not wait, right? We can handle yes or no, go do this or stop that, but that waiting can be so hard, so difficult to hear. And so are we a hearer and a doer when it comes to waiting? Right? And that's a hard one, right? Because none of us like to hear that. We're used to being able to do stuff. Verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Right, And so think about this scene. There's a party for all the people and all of his peers and cohorts and all this. And no doubt they're getting liquored up, right? And the barriers are coming down and the pride. And then this young lady walks in and she's doing some type of a seductive dance. And then here's a hasty vow, right? Hasty vows. Ask me whatever you want and I will give you up to half my kingdom. One of the problems with that, though, is that's not the kind of king that Herod was. Herod was a tetrarch. He, he was not, he had a quarter of the Roman Empire that had been given to him. Herod didn't have the ability to give away half of his kingdom. Rome would not have let that fly. But it's a hasty vow, right? Do we make hasty vows in our situations, whatever they may be, Do we make hasty vows or are we quick to listen and slow to speak? Right? Because that can be hard sometimes, especially when there's emotion. It can be very easy to lash out, right? It's like, I've got to give you a piece of my mind. But the problem is I don't have too many pieces to give away, right? Are we quick to make hasty vows? Right, and let me also share something else. Words can hurt, right? This whole sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me is foolishness, and you all know it, right? Words do hurt. Words can cut and words can scar. And so when we're thinking about what we're going to say, perhaps it's better to not say it rather than make a hasty vow. Verse 24. So she went out, said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, 
he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. What a family scene, right? Tough spot. But do we understand that our sin affects other people? I mean, this is a very overt example, right? Herod's hasty oath cost John the Baptist his life, right? And we understand that with overt things, murder, theft, lying, right? I mean, these are things that that our sin, it directly affects other people. But how about the ones that are more subtle, right? The own sins that I have within me, how I think about someone, whether it's good, bad, or whatever it is. But do I understand that these subtle ones can also affect other people as well because it affects how I respond to them, right? The words that I share with them. Our sin affects other people. And so when we sit and we think, well, I can indulge in this, and it's only me. I mean, this is something that that only affects me. But that's not true. It affects other people. It is a very harsh example, the one we just read about. But it's been said that sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Something to consider. Meanwhile, back at the ranch. All right. Everybody's with me. No eyelids are at half-mast. Everybody's hanging in there. All right, good. All right. So here we go. So the disciples have been sent out. Now they're coming back, right? It is amazing because he gave them the power to heal and to cast out demons. And so now they're coming back, right? A huge time of pouring out. Lots of stuff that we can glean from this. And it says in verse 30, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come apart by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. All right, so a few things here. So at the end of our days, right, just our daily days, do we debrief, if you will, with the Master? Right? When we finish a time of, of outreach, we are very vulnerable. Right? We've been pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. And if it was a good experience, right, there's that opportunity for pride. Right, This was something that I had done and God used me because I am so special. Right? But if it was poor, right, then the adversary shows up and, and whispers, you couldn't even remember the scripture you were supposed to use. How can you call yourself a Christian, right? There's, it's a time that we're very vulnerable after having poured out. But it's been said that if we don't come apart and rest, we'll come apart at the seams. Rest. Rest is important. And the story that I would story, right? See how easily that just came out? The narrative that I would point you to 
is that of Elijah from Kings, <clears throat> right? And you've heard the story. This prophet, God used him to do some amazing things, right? And so he's up on Mount Carmel or Carmel, I guess, depending on where you're from. And, it, and there are all these prophets of Baal. He calls them out. It's a huge victory, huge victory for God. And God uses Elijah so powerfully right after that. He prays and it rains after he had prayed for it not to rain. All of this stuff, it was a huge pouring out. And right after that, Jezebel, who was the queen, whose prophets, or those were her prophets, whom Elijah slew, at the end of this, she threatens him and she says, if by tomorrow the same thing hasn't happened to you that happened to these prophets, you know, this is what I'm going to do to you. And you would think that this prophet of God that had just been used so mightily would be like, oh, no, you didn't. But that's not what happened. He took off and he ran. He was, he was scared and he ran and ran and ran. And he finds himself underneath a tree saying, Oh, Lord, this is it. You should just end my life now. That's it. He was vulnerable because he was tired for one of the reasons. This was a huge pouring out. We are vulnerable after we have poured out and we have poured out. It happened to Elijah and it can happen to us. So what do our schedules look like. Will you advance the slide one, please? Do they look like this? And I don't know whose schedule this is. It just looked very busy when I was pulling it up, so I can't confirm or deny things that are on this. Does your calendar look like this? Is every minute full? Do you have stuff planned for every day? Or, if you'll advance the slide one, do you have designated white space? Right, that's what we used to call it. It's designated white space. It's planned time when there's nothing going on. Right? Do you have time in the mornings, in the evenings, when you fellowship with your Creator? Right, but they're small increments, right? It's only at eight. Thank you for pointing that out, Krista. <laughs> But ministry causes us to pour out, right? So who here is in the full-time ministry? If you're a believer in Christ, your hand should be up, right? Right, that's a trick question, right? I set you up for failure there, but so, right. If you are a believer in Christ, you are in the full-time ministry, right? Just because you're not teaching or serving on a mission field somewhere, he has you on your respective mission fields wherever they are whether it be in the jail, at the School of Mines, in the Taj Mahal, at home, wherever it is. That's your, that's my, that, those are our respective mission fields. And so we are serving, and my point in all of this is we need to have time. There needs to be designated white space to debrief with the master, to talk to him about what's going on, to wrestle with him about, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand, and I want you to show me. Do you have time to do that? I 
can't answer that for y'all. You have to. Do you have time? Because if your schedule is so chocked full, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. All right, so if you'll advance one more. All right. So this is the last thing we read. It says, so they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. And so these are pictures of the Sea of Galilee. And so the next verse that we read says, but the multitudes saw them departing and many knew him and they ran there on foot from all cities, right? You can sort of see why that would be, right? If it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's a big lake, right? And so you see them headed out and you can sort of see where they're going. And so you run around the lake and you meet them when they're there, right? It's like Green Acres. You know, just have a different hat on, you know, depending on which thing you want to get done. Verse 34 says, And Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them. But they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into surrounding country <clears throat> excuse me, and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. What? You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? All right, so just as a side note, right? So just, what is a committee? So a committee is a group of people that individually can't do anything. And collectively, they decide that nothing can be done, right? <laughs> So we give committees a hard time. They have their, their purpose, right? But, you know, more often than not, that's what it seems like. <laughs> you feed them. Don't miss what he just said here. Will you advance the slide, please? This is a picture of roughly 8,000 people, right? We're going to read here in just a minute that there were 5,000 men here. And we know that they probably would have had wives and kids there. And so I think that it's fairly conservative that 8,000 people, right, it was probably much larger than that. Put yourself in their sandals. You feed them. What? You feed them. What comes to mind? What are some of the... How? Right. How? Don't we have the tendency to measure what God has called us to do by our resources? Don't we have the tendency to do that? How? How? You want what? What? That's a huge group of people. You want uh, what? Uh, uh, how? Right. Exactly. Has He called you to do something? that seems impossible or even ridiculous. Has He called you to do that? What does this look like for you? For them, it was thousands of people. For you, maybe it's a move, maybe it's a decision, maybe it's something else, but it looks just like this to you, right? Overwhelmingly impossible. 
What has he called you to do? What has he called me to do? Right? What does it look like? Are you measuring God's commands by your resources? Are we? Right? Because we certainly have the tendency to do that. Now, their faith is going to fail. And I would also point out that they just came back from doing all this amazing ministry, casting out demons, healing people, ministering on his behalf. And as soon as they get back and they go across the lake, their faith fails. They're vulnerable, right? And so are we. What has he called you to do? Let me read from 1 Corinthians. It says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And also from 2 Corinthians, Paul had some type of thorn in the flesh, and we're not told what it was. Folks speculate that it had to do with his eyes, but we're not told. It's just a thorn in the flesh. And he cried out to God on three different occasions to Please heal this. Please take this away. It was a weakness that he had. That's my point in bringing it up. He had a weakness, and he was praying about it. God, please take this. And finally, he said in 2 Corinthians, God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, I have that on my wall for what he has called me to do up here at Mines because it is well over my head. And I struggle on uh, basically a weekly basis. And I have it on my wall, right? It's an Ebenezer stone for me, and I'll get to that in just a minute. My problem is I don't look at it, right? It's on the wall, right? I need to be reminded of these things, but I don't look at it. <clears throat> but what has, has he called you to do? Who are your 8,000 that he has called you to feed, who are they, right? What is the situation? Their faith is going to fail, and because our Lord is so good, He's still going to use them, right? And we're getting ready to read about it. That's just the way that He is, right? He is, he is amazing. He's still going to use them, but it's to a lesser degree, right? They had the opportunity to do the miraculous. He said, you feed them. You feed them. But they missed it. But he still told them, all right, okay, all right, you can't handle that. You go figure out how much we've got. Organize the people. Have them sit down in small groups and go do this and go do that. He still used them as he will use us when we fail. He still used them, but it was to a lesser degree. So they had just come back, right? They had just come back from doing some amazing things. Right? Don't we have the tendency to forget what he has done already? Right? Because we all have stories and testimonies of what he's done in our lives, right? But those grow faint with time. Do you have a way that you keep up with that? Do you keep a journal? Do you write down in your own words? And this is different for guys because journaling is not a guy thing, but I'm telling you that it's important. And the reason why is because 
when you're having the mountaintops, right? When you are coming back to the master and it's like, this is amazing. This is what I prayed. This is what you did. You're writing it in your own handwriting, what he has done, because the valleys are coming, right? This world is not meant to be easy. This world is boot camp, right? You know that, right? This life is not intended to be easy. It's a training period for eternity. And when you're in the valleys again, you've got your journal. It's not somebody else's writing. It's yours. You can't argue with that. You wrote that about how God had moved. And when it's dark again, you can be reminded of what you know in the light. Do you keep a journal? They are... I can't recommend them highly enough. Or an Ebenezer stone. What, is, what in the world is an Ebenezer stone? So in the book of Samuel, right, in the Old Testament, God had, it was a great victory that God had wrought for the Israelites. And Samuel told them, look, take a stone and stand it up as a reminder of what God has done. As a reminder When the Israelites, when they came across the Jordan, Joshua told them, look, pile up stones so that when your kids see the stones and they ask, what are these? You can tell them the mighty works that God has done. Do you have reminders in your lives about what God has done? So that when you are faced with another challenge, you can be reminded of what He has done in the past. And like I said, I have this scripture on my wall in the office, but I don't look at it, right? So that's, you know, it's an Ebenezer stone that I don't look at, so it's not very helpful. Verse 38. But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He blessed and he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Right? This is the model we were just talking about. After a huge time of pouring out, going and debriefing with the Master, right? That's what we see Jesus doing with his Father, right? Huge time of ministry. And where does he go after it's over, right? He, he, he's vulnerable. He goes to spend time with the Father, right? Just like we should do, right? But let me ask you this, right? Let me get into your spiritual kitchens for just a minute, right? Because prayer is a spiritual thermometer, right? Do you pray? Do you pray? Because that can be an indicator as to whether you think, I got this handled, right? I can handle all of this. I don't, I don't. Why should I pray? Or do you pray recognizing that I'm not sufficient for the things that I've got in this day, right? Prayer can be a spiritual thermometer. All right. 
But, so one other thing on this. Let me beat this one more time. In John 15, Jesus is talking about the vine and the branches, right? As in, He is the vine and we are the branches. And He says that without Him, we can do nothing. So where does that leave us when it comes to prayer? If without Him, we can't do anything, do we pray? And about what do we pray? All right, moving on. Verse 47. Now when evening came... We're almost done, and y'all are doing great. Hang in there, right? We got a few more verses, right? Y'all are great. Very, very good. Now, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, right? And if you'll advance the slide one more time. So, again, the Sea of Galilee. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And now, about the fourth watch of the night, so this is between 3 and 6 in the morning. He came to them walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. All right, so a few things here. So as a fisherman, you would have known of the tradition that was in that day that said that if, if you're fishing and there's a storm and you're going to drown in that storm, you would see a ghost right before you drown, right? So just to give some, some context to why are they... Why in the world they think it was a ghost, right? But, but that was their tradition. But it says in verse 48 that he would have passed them by. He would have passed them by. Why? Why would he have passed them by? Because he knew they were going to get there, yeah. Just giving them a little, hey, I'm here. All is good. You guys are going to get there. Yeah, that's good. So what else? Maybe he was waiting for them to invite him into the boat. To invite him into their situation. Right? Do we, in our storms, invite him in? Perhaps. But I would also like to point out that there's more at stake than the little storms that you and I are in in our lives. And we get a glimpse of that in the book of Job. Satan comes to God and God says to him, Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, Well, he's your servant, but he only serves you because you bless him. You let me at him and he'll curse your name. And God says, Okay, within these parameters, he's yours. Just don't take his life. And so we see all of these things happen to Job. His family stripped away from him. His life is basically stripped. His health is stripped away. And he's sitting in an ash heap, scraping the balls on his arms with a broken pot. But he's not cursing God. There's more at stake in the storms in our lives than just that storm. 
Could it be, could it be that God has said, have you considered my servant Russell to the adversary? Or have you considered my servant Job or Eric or Art or Logan or fill in the blank, Andy? Have you considered my servant Andy? Is your storm an opportunity to silence the adversary? Because it is a storm and things are hard, but this is my opportunity to walk by faith. And I'm not going to curse my God because He has saved me and He has given me a new life. And I'm not going to curse Him. Is this storm an opportunity for you to personally silence the adversary? I don't know. But there's more at stake, right? There are things that we don't see with our eyes. There's more at stake than the storms. But he also says to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And that's a choice, right? So it's a command here, be of good cheer. But that's a choice that we make, right? And I oftentimes, and my wife can attest to this when things are not going well with research, I choose not to be of good cheer. Not to be of good cheer. But that is a choice when you and I are in the storms, we have a choice to make. Are we going to be of good cheer? And so she can tell you that even as recent as, probably won't go into that, that I was not of good cheer. And, I, and those are things I have to repent of, right? Because those are the storms. Those are the little storm for the small s that he brings into my life on a weekly basis. Do I choose to be of good cheer? And so then what follows, he rev- it's I. The I am. This is the creator, the beginning and the end. Do not be afraid. Do I choose to be of good cheer in the storm? And then finally it says, because their heart was hardened. What causes hard hearts? I mean, there are a lot of things, but what? Pride? Yeah. Yeah, Unbelief? Fear? Yeah. Indeed. I would suggest to you that when we are in trials... Right. If you read in the, in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, it talks about spiritual armor and it talks about fiery darts and it, and it talks about holding up the shield of faith that the fiery darts from the wicked one might be quenched or extinguished. And I would suggest to you that when you are in your trials, when we are struggling, that our adversary is not going to remind us of God's victories in our lives. He's not going to remind us of the things that are written in your journal. He's going to remind us of our failures. God's not listening to you. He's got other things going on. But Ephesians 6 exhorts us to hold up the shield of faith, right? Walking by faith, choosing to believe that God is good in the midst of the storm will quench those fiery darts. But I would also say that we're exhorted in Hebrews 3. It says, Beware, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But what does it say about them specifically, right here and right now, that's applicable to that table right there that we're getting ready to indulge in? It says, For they had not understood about the loaves, 
because their heart was hardened. Jesus broke those loaves, right? And so we're getting ready to celebrate communion. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so understand that when you are taking the elements of communion, that's what you're doing. You are celebrating, doing it in remembrance of him, remembering that it's by his broken body, by his stripes, we are healed. And God has said that the life is in the blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so I would suggest one of the things that helps keep that helps to keep our hearts soft and malleable is the communion table and remembering what He has done, remembering the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Please understand what it is. This is not just an act. This is an amazing... He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to the table, we are celebrating what He has done. Think about it. Think about it. The scripture says, don't do it unworthily. Understand that we're all sinners saved by grace and that when we choose to give our lives to Christ, He saves us, plucks us from the miry clay, puts our feet upon the rock. And that's what we get to celebrate when we do this. It is astounding. All right. So here's the bookend, right? Here's the other end. And you're saying, finally, thankfully, Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Genesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and they begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment and as many as touched him were made well. That's a huge contrast to Nazareth, right? Where we were at the beginning of the chapter, right? And, I, and when it talked about that he could do no mighty work there, this is what I envision him being able to do there. The people, right, you know, they're running with stretchers. You got people on the stretchers that are just bouncing, right? And it's just a flood of people from everywhere just going to see Jesus, going to see the Master. So if you'll advance the slide one more time. Perfect, thank you. All right. So we're going to take communion, but before we do, I want to pray for us. And then we'll all... If you want to take communion, please grab it and we'll all take it together at the same time. So let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. So many things here about faith, Lord, and about choosing to believe you in the midst of our storms. We want to see you use us for your purposes, to advance your kingdom, Lord, in, in our spheres of influence, wherever they might be. We want to receive your word to us. We want to be those that you use to feed whoever it is or to go there or to do this. We want to have the faith to be able to do that. And so as we study you and as your word tells us that Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God as we study about you in this living book. 
may you increase our faith as we choose to follow you. Thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.